The following Downstage Center program was originally broadcast in May 2008. Welcome to Downstage Center, a presentation of XM Satellite Radio and the American Theater Wing. I'm John Von Susten, Program Director of XM28 on Broadway. And I'm Howard Sherman, Executive Director of the American Theater Wing. Our guest today is a man whose name is synonymous with American theater, Harold Prince. As a producer and a co-producer, he has given us shows including The Pajama Game, Damn Yankees, West Side Story, Fiorello, A Funny Thing Happened on the Way to the Forum, and Fiddler on the Roof. As a director on the 20th Century, Sweeney Todd, Evita, Cabaret, Kiss of the Spider Woman, and The Phantom of the Opera. As a producer and director, She Loves Me, Cabaret, Zorba, Company, Follies, A Little Night Music, Pacific Overtures, and Merrily We Roll Along. And I only hit the highlights on those. He has directed many plays, including Hollywood Arms, The Visit, The Great God Brown, and his own play, Grandchild of Kings. His opera productions have been seen at many of the world's great opera houses. He is the recipient of a record 21 Tony Awards. He was a 1994 Kennedy Center honoree, and in 2000 he received the National Medal of Arts from President Clinton for a career spanning more than 40 years in which, quote, he changed the nature of the American musical, close quote. We thank Hal Prince for his many contributions to American theater and for joining us for this, the 200th interview program on Downstage Center. Is that me? I think that covers you, <laughs> at least in part. Only okay. scratches the surface. Hal, it's now 60 years since you first went to work for the legendary George Abbott. In that time, what would you say are the most positive changes you've seen in Broadway and in the American theater? It's a very acute and difficult question because I think most of the changes are negative. I, I think uh, that... Probably one of the most positive is because of uh, the economics of the the dollar versus Europe, uh, European currency. So we now have a great many more Europeans in theaters. That would uh, be uh, that would that would ensure capacity, uh, particularly in musicals, and uh, usually what feeds those audiences is. Uh, musical material that that doesn't require an intricate knowledge of English, so you can you can have a, a show like Phantom of the Opera and you, you you see it and experience it and understand the language. And there are a number of shows that do that. Uh, the the drama uh, has terrible taken a terrible beating because of the. Uh, uh, competition of television and to some extent film. I actually happen to think that films are not as good as they were in the golden days and I don't think television is as good as it was because it's been appropriated by so much uh, uh, reality television which is cheap and uh, doesn't require much art artistry. It's hard to think that there are a lot of improvements. What I see in the landscape is there are just as many talented, potentially talented composers, lyricists, uh, librettists, playwrights, lots of playwrights, but they are not getting the encouragement that we all did. Uh, we, I, I, I was a subsidized theater of my own because of the... The the cost of productions was a couple of hundred thousand dollars to put on a musical, so I just had my investors and I picked up the phone or or sent a letter out and in one day I raised all the money I had, which enabled me to do exactly what I wanted to do in the theater, which is to say West Side Story, and Fiddler on the Roof, neither of which would have been produced. I think, had I not produced them. And yet they're, they're uh, uh, classics. Uh, Cabaret is another example. Uh, today you have to go through investors. And, uh, and uh, if you look at most theater pieces on Broadway, you'll see that there are more names over the title producing than in the cast of most of the shows. You'll find 25 people over the title and and uh, 10 people in a cast. You'll also find that the way to put plays on now is 
or musicals is that you try them out somewhere and then they get a great great review from some uh, maybe the times and then a, a bunch of people call each other and say I'll put up 300 4 500,000 dollars we'll each take a flyer well it's not much of a flyer it's already gotten a good review and then they and then they put their names over the titles and it's a shot at a tony not an earned tony but a tony I'm not, uh, you know, I, despite the number of Tonys I have, I, you won't see them. Uh, I, I, I'm very happy to have had them, but I, I put them in a context that they belong. There are some shows I've done I should have won Tonys award, uh, uh, for, and uh, uh, some shows I should never have won Tonys for. Uh, it's, it's, that's the nature of award giving. It's... Uh, you know, you don't take it too seriously. But mostly, your question was was uh, was worded to only elicit, and you weren't doing it on purpose. One answer: the theater is not as good in as good shape today as it was, not remotely. From what point of view? From a creative point of view? From a creative point of view. How about financial? Plays, point of view? plays uh, open on Broadway now. You notice limited, limited, limited. Now everything's ten weeks, twelve weeks, fourteen weeks. Uh, drop in, drop in productions. The plays ran three, four, five years. Life with Father ran nine years. Uh, it it that was the that was what the theater was and. Uh, and musicals, Ethel Merman played as much on the road as she played on Broadway. Mary Martin played South Pacific and uh, One Touch of Venus and then went right out on the road and played Ethel Merman's role in Annie Get Your Gun. No problem with any of that. It was not, we, we, we dealt in a different artistic currency because the theater was your life. That's uh, that's not true. A lot of people wish it were, and uh, and surely a lot of writers are getting terribly short-circuited because their shows don't yield the the economic <laughs> what what independence that they could have. You know, you could have a play running and make your living as a playwright. Now you make your living as a short-term playwright. Got to write another play. Got to write another play. As for musicals, I was the first fellow to work with uh, on on Broadway I, with Sondheim, with uh, uh, Kander and Ebb, with Bach and Harnick, with a lot of the guys who who are the meat and potatoes and and, and the great artists in the musical theater. In every case, the first play we did was a flop. And in every case, the next year we did the Tony Award-winning musical. Uh, so you could afford to fall on your face on Broadway the first time in the next the next year, brush yourself off and triumph. It, that's not a scenario that's possible to anybody anymore, not to mention getting a show on takes years and years. It should be an artistic thing. It should be, we need this time to get the material right, not we need this time to um, to beg, borrow, and steal enough money to get a show on. You mentioned three of your shows, West Side Story, yeah. Fiddler on the Roof, and uh, Cabaret. Uh, Cabaret. Could those shows, if they had not already been done, could those shows be produced today? Could they be, be done? Nobody would produce them today. Too expensive? But everyone would produce, no, the revivals. The revivals mm. will, will come at you for every year forever because they were huge successes. But no one would identify that material originally with anything that they wanted to finance. It would be too risky. They just they don't they don't have the guts. Mm-hmm. Come on, we're talking about taste, aren't we? Now, now I'm insulting an awful lot of people, but no one specifically, and I'm conscious of that because there are too many of my colleagues who I really do respect and who are good. So, what really is the mitigating factor is the terrible cost of everything. There are a lot of people out there coalescing to put on material. But then they back off, and 
think they can choose something that will be commercial. There's also a copycatness in in what in how Broadway operates now. So does film. You you do a show like I don't want to be ref, self-referential necessarily, but but Phantom has run 20 years and is still doing 90 something percent capacity. The truth is, do you know how many musicals that it spawned whose names we can't even remember over these past 20 years. So being a copycat isn't a good idea at all. Let's jump back to how you got your start. You came out of the University of Pennsylvania and fairly quickly found yourself with a job with the legendary George Abbott. I've already said it once, but how did you come to work for such an esteemed well, person? I was, so well, I was, very, um, I was very shy. Incredibly shy and and incredibly driven. I uh, I think a whole lot of my childhood made me escape into uh, fantasy, and I could conjure up a fantasy life that I wanted to live. I'm living that life, which is amazing. And if I had not if I had not been able to live that life, I don't know. You know, I, it, you can get very dramatic and say I don't know how I have. Sub- have survived uh, I, the, the the compromise might have been too dangerous the frustration too dangerous I had too much I wanted to say but I was so shy that when I got out of Penn I got out at 19 I went uh, I, I could not do interviews I just was incapable of knocking on a door going to an office and so I wrote l- letters and the one letter I wrote to the George Abbott organization said basically i have just graduated i i don't know how to do anything but i want to do everything so if you will interview me and hire me you need not pay me because i live with my parents and and the subway's a nickel ah it was a nickel <laughs> and uh, lunch was 20 cents and i can do that for 6 months uh, but if you discern that you have not paid me, that I'm working for free because of the quality of what I do, uh, then fire me. That letter was compelling, sort of quirky. No one had ever received a letter like that. So they called for me and hired me. And I worked for six months for nothing. And then then I started to be paid backstage and so on. And in that period, you did office work, you... Began stage managing. Well, what I did, what I did first was, uh, um, I gave the best imitation of J. Pierpont Finch in How to Succeed <laughs> that anyone has ever given. Before and by written. the way, Bobby Morse uh, gave gave a, a performance which reminded people enormously of me, because as as youths we looked exactly alike, and uh, and then he played me in a, a musical called uh, Say Darling. So the the uh, connection was clear. I'd be in the office at eight thirty. Uh, there was ne- never much to do. I'd open the windows because there was no air conditioning, and I'd fill the water bottles and uh, uh, check open the mail sometimes. And uh, I'd, a lot of mail I wasn't allowed to open, of course. So everyone entered the office and saw this kid pretending to work. And then I stayed, and uh, then I did some deliveries, and I did I did a lot of listening. At the end of the day, which was we worked from nine to six every day. Uh, at the end of the day, I was the last one in the office, uh, cleaning up, and everybody said goodbye. And I thought that's this is working. This is they they, they they're impressed. Then uh, Abbott said, I'll put you backstage and assist, as an assistant stage manager to Bobby Griffith, who was his stage manager. And uh, I went backstage and uh, I, uh, on a show called Touch and Go uh, that Gene and Walter Kerr had written at, at Catholic University and, and it had brought them to New York. And it was in the Broadhurst. And I was a call boy. Uh, they didn't have the sound system, so you could not call from... The stage manager's desk. You had to run to every single dressing room and knock on the door, and and uh, which I did. I learned how to call cues and stuff like that. But I kept my day job, 
So I worked from nine till matinee time. Then, and on the other five nights or six, I'd uh, I'd leave the office at six, grab a meal, and go and uh, open and do the cues to a show, which all the shows at those days started at eight thirty and ended closer to eleven thirty. Then I'd be back in the office the next day at nine. And it was the best life in the whole world. I regretted Sundays terribly. Either I did, what do you do with a Sunday? So how did you go from the office of Mr. Abbott and stage managing to branching out to be a producer? Well, Bobby and I were backstage uh, at Touch, Touch and uh, touch and go, and then I did a play. Bobby was in Europe. I did. Uh, I fill, uh, replaced a stage manager on Tickets Please, a show in Boston, and then Abbott got called and asked whether he had a a casting director. And Bobby Griffith was his casting director and was in Europe redoing Touch and Go, and Bill Hammerstein was in Europe redoing one of the Leland Hayward shows, and Leland Hayward was planning call me madam so abbott said yeah i've kid he's only just 20 i think he could cast so i ended up casting an ethel merman show because she was cast and paul lucas was cast but i cast all the other parts and uh, over at hayward's office during the break of casting that show i also substituted on the telephone uh, at lunch hour and, uh, and, and uh, because it gave me the opportunity to pick plug, it was a plug-in phone and say, "Oh yes, Miss Hepburn, I'll, I'll see if he's in," or "Oh yes, it was it was very glamorous stuff." Then I go back to my office and cast, and uh, <clears throat> I was then meant to be the first assistant stage manager of Call Me Madam. Uh, instead, I was the first man drafted into the Korean War in uh, New York and Manhattan because I'd missed out on World War II. And the Daily News ran a picture of me. And it said, Korean threat. And it was a, it, it, this kid's picture. You were the Korean threat. I was the Korean threat. And, uh, and of course, I, I didn't go to Korea. I went to Germany. And that was the best thing that ever happened to me because I was terribly conscious that in the even in the small Abbott office, I created a lot of unwelcome energy. You know that kind of ambition, it, 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 even good-natured, is is tough to take. So when I when I got drafted, uh, it was the best thing. I, I I was frustrated. It took me away. My game plan was shot. I didn't know that Abbott would take me back, which indeed he did. And uh, I went off to Germany. And I was in Stuttgart. And in the, that period, I haunted a little club called Maxime's. And uh, there was a, a little MC in it. And uh, three very galumphing, chunky German chorus girls. And it was all, uh, Stuttgart was bombed out, totally bombed out. And it was in the basement of a church, this Maxim's. And, of course, years and years later, I picked the, that MC, and it, it, he solved the whole structure of cabaret. So years later, even that was a deductible trip for uh, <laughs> two years in Europe. Another thing that, that, I, that I did uh, was um, Abbott had signed on to do some television on on uh, NBC, very early television in 48, the Hugh Martin show with a lot of uh, uh, Hugh Martin's singers and all Hugh Martin material and Kay Ballard and Butterfly McQueen and so on. And Abbott wrote it and directed it. And I knew instantly he was sorry he'd done this half-hour show on Sunday nights. So he hired a very esteemed playwright to to write the second episode. And it came in on a Friday in the office. And I, wrote, I read it. I thought, the boss isn't going to like this. This is not what he's doing. So on Monday morning, I 
there was a call from his office uh, across the hall saying how, yes, this script, I can't do the script. Now, I have to write a half-hour television show on Monday, and I'm due to go in rehearsal later today with it. Oh, God. And I said diffidently, I said, well, Mr. Abbott, I, I wrote a script over the weekend if you'd like to read it. And uh, and uh, he said, yes. And that was the second show. And then he said, you direct it. I'll come and look over your shoulder. So that, that happened. But how does that get you to being a producer? Well, that's that. The, the it, you can see what you're really just seeing is a lot of ambition. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, was but ultimately, so you're doing all of these different things. I'm and- doing all these things, and now I'm backstage. And and when I came out of the army, I went. He he rehired me immediately, and said, "We're doing uh, uh, my sister Eileen, which became Wonderful Town with Rosalind Russell. Why don't you go get a contract? We'll be two weeks." And then we'll go in rehearsal. So I did that. And then I stood in the wings with Bobby Griffith as his sec- second assistant stage manager. And uh, I said, why don't we do this? Why don't we produce? Why are we doing this for somebody else? Uh, we see them doing good things and making mistakes. And certainly not returning the money to the investors that they should be. Because they're, they're wasting money. It's like government. All these 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 bills are being signed off and paid, and w- why? So uh, I think I inspired him to to that, and then he thought it was a good idea. He'd been in the theater; he was twenty five years older than I. He found a review in, in the New York Times of a book called Seven and a Half Cents, and called me. He was working on a fiftieth anniversary television show for the Ford Company, so he couldn't read the book. But it was in that morning's New York Times. So I read the book, and he said, if you like it. So I read it instantly, maybe an hour. And uh, and I went to the agent. I called for an appointment, and then I called Bobby. And, and we both went to Harold Matson's office, which was across the way in Rockefeller Center. Matson had offers, an offer from Leland Hayward, an offer from someone else, just based on the reviews in the in the Times. And we said to Matson, we think we can interest George Abbott in directing this. We didn't know we could interest him in, in co-authoring it as well. But Matson said, if you can interest George Abbott, I'll consider giving you the rights. And he gave us the rights. Very brave man. We gave, gave, got the rights. And uh, in exactly one year, Wonderful Town was 53, 54, Pajama Game opened. And in those days, you did not, you were not paid uh, as a producer. A, a, a show had to return its investment before you saw a plug nickel, which would be impractical today with the cost. But really, if you think about it intrinsically, it makes the producing job so much harder and something you really ought to know how to do because you've got to get paid after you've recouped. So it took us 12 weeks to recoup. We did the show for $169,000. But we were both stage managers until the show recouped. On your own show. on the opening night of the show, we wore dinner clothes and we had uh, uh, flashlights in our hip pockets and we were on either side of the stage and every number stopped the show. And all these Famous people were out there. We didn't know any of them. And then at the end of the show, we, the curtain came down. It got a huge ovation, and you knew that it was just going to lines around the block next day. And we just simply walked across the stage and embraced each other. And uh, we knew we'd done it. And the next day we did, uh, next year exactly, we did a Damn Yankees. I staged that one. He didn't. He retired. Well, here you, you were, the two of you, you and Bobby Griffith, um, novice producers. You'd not produced anything. You didn't have a track record. How did you get the investors in the first place? And then how did you recoup so quickly when other shows may have been failing? Other well, there are two, there are two good questions. The first simply is we, we did investors' or, or, uh, auditions, and we did them in living rooms. Edie Adams lent us our living, 
her living room, and we'd brought uh, a uh, bottle of scotch and potato chips, and then we'd pass them around. Four kids sang the score. The composers played it. I told the story. Bobby passed the hat, and we'd move on. We did 11 such auditions to raise $250,000. That was that was fun because, I mean, hell, I, I was 25, 24. It was just fun to play showbiz and raise money and talk people out of that stuff. How did we spend so little? For example, the pajama game took place in a pajama factory. So... Uh, I contacted a pajama factory in Iowa where Richard Bissell, the co-author, had written it. And and it was about a family business. And I got all the pajamas free and all the fabrics for all any pajama costumes free. I got 24 sewing machines free in return for a publicity. Not only that, they then used our show to publicize their pajamas and they had a lot of pictures of girls at, at machines and so on. And that's uh, I did that all the time. Uh, uh, when all the way to 1964 when I did uh, Fiddler on the Roof, uh, Jerry Robbins directed it, I produced it. By then, Bobby Griffith had died, and I was on my own. Uh, Boris Aronson did the scenery, but he was not interested in props. It just, that part of the theater didn't interest him a lot. So I, I decorated all the sets, the shops and stuff. I just, bolts of material and stuff. He'd do lighting fixtures and really architectural stuff, but I cluttered the sets. And and uh, and did all that by myself, mind you. This implies that I knew I had taste. <laughs> it worked out. Yes, it worked out. You have written and spoken often about your role as a creative producer. That specific term, the creative producer. In this first phase of your career, obviously there were so many shows that came together. But I'm wondering, in particular, about two. West Side Story and Fiddler on the Roof. How much were those shows your instigation? And how much were those shows that came to you? They, they came. They very much came to us. Uh, in the case of West Side Story, <coughs> Cheryl Crawford was supposed to produce it. But the year before, she'd done Candide. And it had lost all its money. And it was a, a f famous failure. Uh, a succès d'estime because Lenny had written a great score, but the book was awful. Uh, parenthetically, years later, I took Candide and 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 and, and uh, thanks to Hugh Wheeler, made a success of it. But at that point, Cheryl was turned off, so she walked out on the show, and uh, I had known about it, and so I talked to Bobby about it, and we agreed to pick it up. We were on the road with a show that was not doing so well. Turned out to, to pay off, but it was not all that good a show called New Girl in Town. So we flew in on a Sunday to hear the score, which I actually knew already, and we picked up the show, and we put the show in rehearsal probably six weeks later than it would have gone into rehearsal. But we acted editorially and in the case of Jerry, who was always gun-shy and never wanted to go into rehearsal, I was very important. I, uh, Jerry, uh, Jerry respected me. So the three days before rehearsal, he had uh, his lawyer send me a, a thing saying, Jerry's not going into rehearsal on Monday. It's not ready. And I said, tell Jerry to send me a check for so-and-so and so-and-so, and, -so, and then he doesn't have to go into rehearsal. And then Jerry called, crying, more or less. And then I said, uh, well, I mean, what do you think you're doing to me? So we went into rehearsal on Monday. And uh, uh, that kind of thing. 
Uh, I think I was a good editor, but uh, I can't take a lot of credit for West Side Story. As far as Fiddler's concerned, it's a different question. I was asked to direct Fiddler first, and I said, I don't understand those people. Yes, I'm a Jewish boy, but I'm, I'm a German Jewish boy, and I don't understand the shtetl and, and how that, that would animate, how you would uh, provide that on the stage. I said, so why don't you get Jerry Robbins? And they said, he's busy. Uh, and I said, okay, well, what can I say? I'm sorry, but I'll do She Loves Me instead, which they had written simultaneously. That I understood, after all. That was my world, or my antecedents world. So I did She Loves Me, and Jerry then became available. And Jerry said to them, I will do... West Side Store, no, uh, uh, sorry, Fiddler on the Roof, if Hal produces it. So it came right back to me. So She Loves Me, was that the first show that you actually directed in? No, Broadway? actually I replaced a director who should be remain, remain nameless uh, on a show called A Family Affair, which John Kander and Bill and, and Jim Goldman had written about a wedding uh, from beginning to end. Wonderful cast. Eileen Heckert, Shelley Berman, Larry Kurt, uh, 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 ma- massive number of uh, great Jewish actor. Uh, I'm, I'm blanking, but uh, great, great actor. And, and uh, uh, Rita Gardner. It was all, all wonderful people. So I went to Boston. I had had a phone call. I knew that they had offered... They were going to fire their director, and they had asked Jerry, George Abbott, Morton DaCosta. They'd asked all the heavyweights. And then I got a phone call from Richard Seff, the agent, who was a cousin of the producers. And he called me and said, we're going to close on Saturday night unless we find a director. And I hear you want to be a director. Mm -hmm. And I said, well, I do. And he said, will you come down and look at the show? It was like Monday, Tuesday. I came down, looked at the show, and didn't come home. I stayed and worked with it for about two and a half weeks. We came to preview in New York, and we got quite good reviews and and uh, ran a, a modest but decent amount of time. And, and uh, I was a Broadway director. When you were a kid... You saw a lot of plays, not a lot of musicals. You didn't have much interest in musicals. Not, not at all. You have said also that you never really intended to, wanted to be a producer. So here you had been producing musicals. Now as a director, were you finally feeling fulfilled? Was this something that you were really burning to do? It's what I was always burning to uh-huh. do. I, what I was burning to do was be a playwright. Mm. And I wasn't good enough. So uh, I, uh, I, the next best thing was a director. And I have a facility for words, and I can write, but I cannot write good plays. But that's very useful to a director. I know a great many directors, mostly director choreographers, who are not articulate, who think with their feet and have great instincts, but they have a problem articulating what they want. I don't have such such a problem. You've worked with two of the greatest directors of all time, George Abbott and Jerome Robbins. Those are the two. What did you learn from the two of them? Uh, everything. From Abbott, I learned uh, organization. I learned truth. Never do anything for effect. Do it because it grows out of the character. And that surprises people often because he did farces and people slam doors. But... You don't slam a door unless you want to get out of the room or you enter the room agitated. But you don't just slam a door. No one will ever laugh. And uh, I learned to rehearsal start at 10. I'm there at 5 of. And if you're there at 5 after, we have a conversation about it mm-hmm. to this day. From Jerry, I learned... Me, uh, more about metaphor 
You know, Jerry was the one who insisted on tradition, which really solved the all-over umbrella uh, problem of, of, of Fiddler on the Roof. It wasn't just a Jewish family story. It was about tradition as it affects families in the world. And that, that I learned. And I learned I can't dance. I can't move, really. I can walk. But I learned how to take units of people and move them on a stage diagonally, move them from way upstage in a block right straight down to you or the reverse. I, those would all be steps that Jerry provided. For me, it was just action. And it was very valuable because, as in something like Sweeney Todd, I thought, how am I going to tell all these poor people who are really doing chorus jobs and having no lines to speak, you know, but suddenly they're singing City on Fire. How am I going to make them as intrinsic a part of the project as the principles? And I did that by treating them as one character. The whole ensemble was one character. And then I thought, what are they, what do they have in common? And what they have in common is they're all starving. And it's England during the early days of the Industrial Age. And so everyone in the company could finally be cannibalistic. People were chopped up and eaten. And they could, they could do this because they were in a common uh, 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 position of, of uh, they never saw daylight. We built a set so that daylight never shone. All you saw was dirt, and they were in a factory where nothing was made. It was a factory where we made Sweeney Todd, as far as I was concerned. But it was my metaphor. The Sweeney Todd now has been done a number of times successfully, not my way. Inevitably, <clears throat> in talking with you one must ask about the extraordinary artistic partnership that you had with Stephen Sondheim. Half a dozen shows in particular over a 12-year period where you were directing and he was composing. I'm wondering if you could tell us a little about where that partnership was when you first started and where it grew to at the point at well, which we were, you Well, we were friends forever. Mm-hmm. We met uh, on the opening night of uh, South Pacific in the audience. Uh, and uh, we became good friends. I'm two out, uh, years older than, than Steve. And then we just talked a lot about how what we'd like to do in the theater. And then we made a lot of false starts trying to uh, uh, launch projects. And then finally we worked together. And then we worked together and worked together. And it was always the most stimulating and extraordinary and, 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 and really wonderful uh, uh a collaboration at Merrily We Roll Along, which was a, a big flop and probably our first really big one. We actually did wonderful professional work to fig, to make it better, but we were so visible that uh, I mean, you know, you look in Time Magazine and see the two of us, and we're the hope of the season. That's always very bad, and it seemed like a good thing to give give ourselves a breather and work elsewhere. And uh, it was. I, I don't know artistically if it was as much, but we so, certainly both both uh, survived not being partners. Uh, we certainly are as good friends as we ever were. And uh, that's important. And, uh, you know, so it, it, was, it was a very good, it was a, a, a hell of a period of time. And it was a period of time where you could make musicals, identify musicals the way you wanted to. And we both had the same priorities. Because I didn't like musicals. You said it. I, I thought they were dopey. 
They were they were they were an excuse for a lot of wonderful popular music and books that were less than tissue paper thin. As a youth, I saw the Mercury Theater with Orson Welles. Uh, I saw the Julius Caesar, the modern dress Julius Caesar. I saw, oh Lord, Robert Morley. As a little kid, I saw my parents took me to saw Robert see Robert Morley playing Oscar Wilde. Why the hell you take a kid to see that? I don't know, but. Um, and I saw all the O'Neill plays. Actually, I saw A Long Day's Journey in Tonight five nights in a row. That's 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 loving what you see, let me tell you. Uh, I guess so. Well, going back to the first two collaborations with uh, Stephen Sondheim Company in 1970 and Follies in 1971, they were both, I guess, uh, high-concept shows, which also were very problematic in their creation. The company was... They were anti-linear, of- totally. Mm-hmm. We did not. We did not tell a story the way it's normally. Both those shows, uh, the the one show, uh, uh, was based on seven plays of George Firth's company, uh, and uh, we threw out four of them, I think. But uh, I'm the one who said this. Th- there's a musical in this, and Steve and George had to be convinced, uh, and there was a musical in it. Uh, Follies. Steve had been playing or not playing around, really working for ages with people and and not conquering. And then finally I said, okay, if you'll do company before I do Follies, I'll do it. And I did do it. And then I, I think I'm responsible for putting all the abstraction into it. Uh, the, the, teams of people the 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 shadow play the fact that it was very abstract it was had been, it was very realistic originally it was about a group of people uh, getting together for reunion the last day of a theater, of a theater in the life of a theater and uh, they all got drunk and they picked props off walls and started to fight each other and so on and i didn't understand any of that very much and it is said and accurate that I was inspired by a photograph of uh, Gloria Swanson uh, standing in the rubble of the Roxy Theater. She had opened the Roxy Theater in a movie. And now, 35 years later, she was standing in an evening gown in the rubble of the Ro- Roxy Theater. And it seemed to me everything you ever wanted to say about show business. Then the concept of putting the younger characters into it—that came from you. Uh, I, yes. I, I, what 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 happened was the four leads and the, their four alter youthful egos finally clashed on stage right before the folly section in what was a temporary nervous breakdown for all the principals. At the end of the show, one of the principals does not return to reality. She goes home with her husband and she's gaga. All the others make peace with themselves. Following the partnership with Sondheim, there was a period from the early to the mid-80s where there were a number of shows that did not succeed. Yeah. And I had eight shows. I had eight shows that didn't succeed. And I'm just wondering how you get through that period when you have a series of shows that don't work out. From this perspective, it seems like a blip on the radar of a career, but at the time it must have been very painful. It must have been terrible for my family. I have two kids. They were kids. I have a wife. They They had the great dubious pleasure of attending eight openings and reading eight god-awful reviews of these shows. I had picked the shows, so I didn't suffer half as much. Some of those shows were good. Most of those shows were bad, but that's not important. Which are the ones that you particularly were proud of in that period? 
Oh, I I think uh, 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 a doll's a, a doll's life is a very interesting show, flawed but really interesting in a different time. I think it was the the uh, victim of. Uh, of the whole feminism movement and the fact that the whole show was about freeing women. And I think that they didn't want to hear about that. I did some other shows. I did some plays. I, one was, a couple were quite successful. The Visit was successful. The Great God Brown was a huge experience. Well, for let's me. jump back. That was during, that was the New Phoenix repertory that was period, which was actually that more was, of the 70s. That was, that was, that, that, they, they fed me a lot. I needed to do those plays. I needed to do those plays. But uh, I, it, I really, I really copped one. I cannot remember what the eight plays are that, uh, failed. One I do know was a great play that I, I imported from London called Poor Beatus. Just a great play uh, by Anne Marvelous production, great play. They dismissed it. Hmm. That, that happens often. It's not important. It's important only momentarily. Well, two plays, two musicals that did work very well and that uh, to date have combined done about 10,000 performances that you did with Andrew Lloyd Webber, Evita first in 1979. And yeah, a very happy, very opera. happy uh, collaboration. <clears throat> it, uh, Evita provided, uh, uh, Tim Rice actually, uh, Andrew came to visit me in Spain where I lived with my family for years in the summer <clears throat> and brought a recording of the LSO, London Symphony Orchestra, of Avita. And uh, the opening was 200,000 people at a funeral. And it was musically very exciting. And I thought, how the hell do you put 200,000 people at a funeral on the stage? And it just, I was hooked. I wrote a long letter telling them <clears throat> what to do, what I thought they'd have to do with the show. And I uh, got back a letter saying, we, we've decided we'd better do this as a, an album before we cope with your letter. What they call a concept album. It's too much. Yeah. So uh, I thought, I'll never hear from them again. Mm -hmm. So then, a year and a half later, my receptionist said, said, there are two young men in the office, and they want to give you something. And I went out, and they were sitting there, and they brought me the album. And they said, would you like to do the show now? Now we can forget the album, do the show. I said, sure. And then I made them wait another year and a half because I was working on something. And that's, that, I, I sat down and, and dictated the script form because I, I was left with a liner, not the liner notes, the lyrics. And so my assistant took each scene and uh, and we put it in script form, and then I could see what it was missing, most particularly an introduction of, of uh, Perron. So I asked for a song, and, and The Art of the Possible was written, and then I, I, I thought of the notion of five rocking chairs with generals and playing musical chairs with those rocking chairs, and, and that, that was a very important element. Uh, to introduce him and beyond that I just I thought you this show has to <clears throat> each segment of this show has to be in if not a different style a, a surprising setting and sharp and I thought these scenes should the stage should go dark before the scene is completed and we should start another scene before the lights are up so people are hearing voices, and then the scene is there. And that's the way that show was done. Was, was the concept of Che always in, in the show? Yes, yes. they didn't, uh, they didn't think it was Che Guevara. Uh -huh. I said, it has to be Che Guevara. You don't just have a name, Che, for God's sakes. And, uh, and you have to have Che. And uh, <clears throat> basically, uh, I was scared stiff of it went to England, because I'd never seen a show like it, put it on the stage, and uh, the first preview of that show in London is the show that performed 
forever without any changes. And the same is true of Phantom of the Opera. It previewed in London 22 years ago, and it is unchanged 22 years later. In your 1974 book, Conversations, I know bringing up people's words from years ago can be dangerous. But contradictions. I have to quote, contradictions, I apologize. It's a di- very different word. Contradictions. <clears throat> quote, I don't think a show will run longer than Fiddler's 3,242 performances on Broadway. We are now sitting here with I don't know how many thousands of performances of Phantom on Broadway and around the world. Did you ever expect you would have a play live as long as Phantom? And what is it like to have have it going 22 years later? No, it, I, no of course, it's, it's a blessing. That's what it is. It's a, it's a blessing. It, it, you know, I'm older. My kids are older. I have grandchildren. It's all, it's all good. It's a nice thing to happen. It's also doing, it did 100% capacity two weeks ago. Uh, it's playing all over the world. Uh, no, I don't understand how any of that happens. Uh, I certainly didn't set out to do that. Uh, it has happened. Does anybody believe I know more than they do? I don't think so. Uh, I'm still trying to get a show on and uh, struggling, as I always have, despite the existence of the show that's 22 years old. So uh, it's uh, it's a, a good, humbling thing. It, 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 it's a paradox. You, you can do this thing, but I, sure, I didn't think that would happen. What was it like a couple of years ago you went to Las Vegas to somewhat reconceive <coughs> and trim reconceived. the show? That's unusual when you've still got a show running. I didn't, it wasn't to a anybody, I didn't want anybody getting his hands on it So uh, because I know it and I know what works and I know how it works. So I wanted only to do an hour and 35 minutes version of it without intermission I, I had to restructure the story because the chandelier that drops at the end of the first act could not drop because where would you put it? And uh, and I don't think the show's about a chandelier dropping anyway, though it does drop late in the evening. And I wanted to, without falsifying what made it a success, I wanted to give Vegas something that no one who had seen Phantom of the Opera had ever seen. So we did that. We uh, we reconstructed the Paris Opera House, covered it in sheets, and uh, you come in the theater, you sit down, and when the show starts, we uncover the entire Paris Opera House with all the boxes filled with people and uh, jewels and the whole thing. It makes a different experience. Do you go back and revisit the New York and the London versions of Phantom? All the time, I, I I take rehearsals. Uh, I don't. My my assistant gets to to go to a lot of the places I don't get to go to. There are shows that are called George Abbott shows. There are shows that are called Jerome Robbins shows. These are you know phrases. Is there a typical Hal Prince show? My wife would say no. Uh-huh. What would you say? Probably not. Uh-huh. I think. The existence of metaphor and the the fact that I you can't pinpoint me is probably what's interesting about me is that that I that that uh, but the only show I've ever done which was like a musical was the one that was brought to me totally and and that was on the 20th century. And that's because I was out of work and wanted to work. And I thought, these guys write funny. I'll do it. And I did it. But it's the only show that is truly an old-fashioned musical. Are there any shows you've passed on that you wish in hindsight you had done? No, I passed on Hello, Dolly. I don't wish I'd done it. I, I, uh, that's the most memorable. It's a really terrific per- piece of work but I didn't think I was the right director for it, and I was right. At a certain point, you made the decision to largely stop producing and focus only on directing. The decision was made for me. 
the minute it became more of a business than a creative pursuit, I had to stop because just just clabbering around looking for money is not something that gives me any pleasure whatsoever. I mean, I've just written a show. Uh, written a show. I've 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 I'm creating a show with Richard Nelson, who's written the show, this and Paradise Alan Fitzhugh, who's written the show, and it, it's called Paradise Found, and I adore it. It's a wonderful show, and I I it will go on, and uh, uh, thank God Michael Ritchie heard it and said, I have to do this show. And that's Michael Ritchie, who's the artistic the, director uh, at the Tabor and the Amundsen. At the, at the uh, uh, Amundsen, the music center in, in L.A. But he has, uh, he arranged for a lot of money and uh, producers' money to, to hear the show. And I read it last week, and we, uh, we had a wonderful cast, and we presented it to people. But that's a hard thing to do. Uh, it's not as hard since I don't have to pass the hat, but it's still a hard thing to do when you know that it, it's a difficult show. And, and, and basically, I would have been in my office saying, I'm doing Paradise Found next season because I know what it is. And, and I, and I, but you say to the show, you say to the audience, uh, or these people, this is a, a uh, this is a turn of the century story, a fascinating and interesting story. It's, it's hugely comic. Richard writes real funny, and it's very funny. Jonathan Tunick is arranging and adapting the music of Johann Strauss. That's a tough one. That, or maybe it isn't a tough one. For my money, I'd give anything to walk into a Broadway theater and hear all that music. And, and, and to me, what's so different about the music of Johann Strauss and that and what Andrew has done in Phantom, which is running 22 years later? It's soaring, it's romantic, it's a, a, a lot of orchestra, and but still, each time you know there is a certain resistance because people think they equate musicals and plays with something they most recently saw. John spoke a couple of minutes ago about how Prince shows. Certainly now, not a day goes by where there is probably not a new production somewhere of a show that you originally directed or indeed produced. Right. And I'm wondering what the experience is for you, if indeed you go to see them, of seeing work often reconceived. It is no longer the Hal Prince It's production. okay to reconceive them, but I don't usually see them. I don't see why I have to put myself through that. Uh, I know how many years and how much went into unlocking the material. Then when you take something that's a script uh, and uh, sometimes successfully impose another concept on it, sometimes just impose another concept on it, I don't see why I have to do that. I, it, it, it's not unkind. I don't know why I have to do I, I, I have seen some of them, of course, but... Not a lot of them. In the Frank Sinatra song, My Way, there's a line, regrets, I've had a few. Looking back at your 60 years in the theater, have you done it your way, and do you have any regrets? I don't have any regrets because I don't have any memory. <laughs> very simple. I don't, I don't do that very much. I do that. I don't, uh, you know, I, I, I'm sort of in the present, but in the future. Looking forward rather than looking back. Oh, God, yeah. There's nothing. There's nothing. It, it, there's nothing more stymieing than past conquests. And have you done it pretty much your way? Do you think? I think I'm a pragmatic man. Uh, there are some a lot of artists, spectacular artists, who have not had blessed with great careers because they have been not pragmatic, have been too stubborn. To you know, they're they're wonderful artists, 
like Mark Blitzstein, whom I knew briefly in Israel, who was a stunning uh, creator, but he didn't do as much as he could have done if he hadn't been. And there's a story about him. I put money in a show called um, Reuben Reuben that Gerald Crawford uh, produced, and it closed in Boston. And when there was a meeting upstairs in Charles' room, he announced that he's not going to do any fixes because he's familiar with failure. And uh, people can, that, that, that can take charge. You just say, look, that's who I am. I, I, I think you, you have to be pragmatic. You have to make compromises. Hal Prince, thank you very much for being with us today on our 200th interview program on Downstage Center. Thank you very much. Well, that's great. Thank you for asking me. Thank you so much. For the American Theatre Wing, I'm Howard Sherman, reminding our listeners that these programs and all of the education and media work of the American Theatre Wing is available online, on demand, for free from our website, www.americantheaterwing.org. And for XM Satellite Radio, I'm John Von Susten for Downstage Center. That is a wrap, and thank you. The American Theatre Wing encourages all of our podcast fans to share our programs with friends and colleagues, but we remind you that any commercial distribution, commercial use of our programs, or program modification is prohibited without our express permission. We appreciate your cooperation and invite you to contact us with any questions. Thanks for listening.